All right. Romans 15 is where we'll be this morning. So find your Bible, find Romans, find verse 7, and then we'll be on the same page. There may be a uh, temptation to think that Paul waters down his letters as he gets toward the end. Like, okay, we're in the home stretch here of the book of Romans. There are only 16 chapters, and we're in the middle of 15. So maybe Paul's going to just make it light. No, that doesn't happen. This is a pretty difficult passage that we have before us this morning. And so we're going to try to think through what uh, the Lord has for us. The, the first verse we're going to look at, verse 7, and the last verse we're going to look at, verse 13, those are straightforward and easy to understand. It's the ones in between that are and a little more difficult. But let's uh, spend some time in prayer here together, and then we'll start in Romans 15, 7. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness toward us in Christ. Thank you that we can proclaim that it is finished. Our sins are paid for. We are fully accepted by you because of the work of our Savior, Jesus. God, we ask that this morning we would have an elevated understanding of your mercy and kindness toward us, that we would shout out for praise because of your work on our behalf. God, we love you. We thank you for this amazing text you've preserved for us. We thank you for the time we've had in the book of Romans. And as we look to finish it up in the coming weeks, we ask your blessing on every study that we remain focused to see what you have to say with every word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we're going to look at Romans 15, 7 again. We technically, we left off with Romans 15, 7 last week, but uh, I want to look at it again because this is a very important verse to me. I think it's a very sweet verse. So Romans 15, 7 says, Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Well, Paul here is transitioning in the letter from highlighting the differences that exist among God's people. And we do have differences among us, don't we? We're not all the same. We've got a full room this morning, and if you look around at this full room, we're different, aren't we? Yeah, we're very different. Well, Paul has been highlighting that in chapter 14, talking about the stronger brother and the weaker brother. On and on he's going, talking about our differences. But here in verse 7, what is he emphasizing but our unity? <laughs> yeah, it's a little loud in here when we're moving stuff around. But that's a good problem. We've got a good problem. Um, what is Paul highlighting in verse 7 but our unity, right? For, for, uh, chapter 14, he's going through, we have difference of, differences of opinion on whether you can eat meat or not, whether you can drink wine or not. You have stronger consciences and weaker consciences. And then when you get to chapter 15, now he's bringing us back together and saying, look, accept one another, verse 7, just as God and Christ has accepted you. Now, who is exhorted to accept whom in this verse? Who is exhorted to do the accepting? Yeah, which believers? Yeah, that's everybody, isn't it? Everybody. 
Remember what uh, the stronger brothers were told. If you have a strong conscience and, and you have freedom to be able to uh, do things that other people couldn't because their consciences are more sensitive. Well, your role is to not despise the weaker brothers. And the weaker brothers, what's their role? Don't judge the strong. As the strong brother is living out his faith before God with his God-given conscience, don't judge him. And what does that result in? But verse 7, acceptance of one another. Don't put up with one another merely, but full-on embrace one another. You see the standard of this in verse 7. You don't accept one another just flippantly or offhandedly. You accept one another with this standard, just as Christ also accepted us. And how has Christ accepted us? Give me some kind of an answer here. How has Christ accepted us? Unconditionally. Unconditionally? Good. The way we are? Yeah, in our state, right? Totally, fully. There's no lack. He doesn't accept us 90% and then expect us to work our way toward 100%. He starts off 100% and he keeps us at 100% until the day of redemption, until the day we die, until we're with him in glory, okay? So that is a pretty strong statement that Paul is making, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us, okay? And it's, uh, what we're doing here is we're interpreting this section that we're entering here in chapter 15 in the flow of the biblical narrative. Not just in the narrative or the flow of the narrative of Romans, but the overarching biblical narrative. It's critical to understand that here in the first century, at this time when Jesus is just beginning to build his church, the people of God has expanded, hasn't it? It's no longer just Israel that God is dealing with, but he's dealing with his church. And his church is multi-ethnic. His church is from varied backgrounds. His church has pagans in it, Jews in it, and everybody in between. And so it's critical that we understand that big overarching picture that God's church is deep and wide, isn't it? God's church is deep and wide. A lot of the religions in the world want to make God's church really narrow and say, well, to be in God's church, you've got to conform to be like us in every single way all down the line. That's not true. To be in God's church, you have to be unified to God by faith in Jesus Christ. And you're in. And there are a lot of people who are in who are different than we are on matters of opinion. There's not one ethnicity in God's church. There's not one law that we're all under in God's church. There's not one conscience in God's church. We do have, of course, one God, one Lord, one Spirit, one faith, one hope, one baptism. That's Ephesians chapter 4. There is a great unity, but there is also a great diversity at the same time, isn't there? There's unity and diversity at the same time, and God is glorified by seeing this great diversity come together in faith, in the biblical Christ, and accepting one another. That glorifies God. That magnifies God's name. And that's what Paul is exhorting the church to do. So now we get into this harder section and we look at what God has done in Christ, what Christ has done on our behalf. And before we read these verses, I just want to give an overview of what Christ has done with some general statements. The lawgiver made himself subject to the law in Christ. Have you thought about that? Have you dwelt on that? The one who gave the law to Israel took on flesh and was born under the law. 
and lived a life in subject, subjection to the law. The covenant maker made himself subject to the covenant. Who gave Moses the Ten Commandments at Sinai? Who gave Israel the law? Well, we find him in the flesh. And Jesus, as a baby, was circumcised. We talk about Jesus' baptism a lot, but circumcision is talked way more about in the New Testament than baptism. And Jesus was born under that law and into that covenant. Now, that's pretty mind-blowing, isn't it? You think God is humble? That's amazing humility, that the one with all power who doesn't need anybody placed himself under the law. Well, let's read this together, starting at verse 8. Paul says, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. Again, he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. Again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. All right, well, let's uh, just start walking through this, and first we'll focus on verse 8. So you've got verse 8, Paul is talking about the Jews, and verses 9 to 12, he's talking about the Gentiles. A simple note to make grammatically here on verse 8, uh, my translation, New American Standard, reads, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision. To the circumcision. In the Greek, there is no article. There is no the. It literally reads that Christ has become a servant to circumcision. And there's a difference between those two, isn't there? If you say the circumcision, you're referring to Jewish people. If you say just circumcision, you're talking about the act or perhaps the covenant itself. And so is he saying that Jesus is a servant to the Jews or Jesus is a servant to the circumcision? Well, even though there is no article here, uh, I think he's still talking about the Jews. Jesus became, or has become rather, a servant to the Jewish people, is what this is saying. And he's done so on behalf of what? Look at verse 8 again. Why has he become a servant to the circumcision? On behalf of? Good, good. The truth of God. Jesus Christ is upholding in word and in deed by coming to earth and living a life on earth. He's upholding in word and deed the truth of God. You could say that the faithfulness of God was made manifest in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This attribute of God that God is true and faithful, that's manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you want evidence of God's faithfulness? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus Christ. You see God's truth upheld in the person of Christ. And he brought about redemption when he came to earth to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I want to give you a, a parallel passage here. Turn to Galatians 4 with me. Keep your finger here, but turn to Galatians 4. Past 1st and 2nd Corinthians, the next book you get is Galatians. And would someone read Galatians 4, verses 1 to 7? Galatians 4, 1 through 7. 
This provides a little bit of a commentary on what we're reading in Romans 15. Galatians 4, 1 to 7. Who's got it? Okay, go ahead. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. All right. So what is this saying? What's the commentary that it offers us? We'll look at verse 3 again. We were in bondage under the elemental things of the world. He's making a parallel to when you were growing up. When you were a child, you had all kinds of rules, or at least some of you did. (laughs) Uh, In my house, we have all kinds of rules uh, right now. Um, our, Our children are young, and young people need rules, don't they, to keep them in line. And it says, when we were children, we were held in bondage. There's this type of bondage that comes with rules or enslavement or imprisonment. But, verse 4, this sets up the contrast. There's a fullness of time coming. There's a time of maturity coming when you will be released from this bondage. And Jesus Christ was born under that bondage, under the law, and he lived out the law perfectly. Never once transgressed the law in thought, word, or deed, which no one else could have ever done. But Jesus wasn't born with a sin nature. He was able to do it, and he did do it. He lived a perfect life, and through his living and his dying in our place, on our behalf, we are now, if we are in Christ, set free from what what once held us in bondage. The law was like a, a schoolmaster or a tutor, Paul says in Galatians 3. It was whipping our hands with the yardstick. It was beating our hand over and over again because we weren't getting it right. But now in Christ, there is no condemnation, Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we're totally set free from the condemnation that comes from the law, and we're set free from the bondage of being under the law. Instead, we serve the law of Christ, and we look to our Savior, and we live for Jesus in light of what He has done. And his servanthood and his giving of his life resulted in receiving both Jews and Gentiles to himself. It wasn't just the Jews that he received, but we're all here today besides Joe because he also receives Gentiles, right? Jews and Gentiles. And so we are all one in Christ. That's the church. Let's go back to Romans 15. We are all one in Christ, and we rejoice in how he has brought us together according to his redemptive plan. We are one in Christ, but we didn't all come to Christ. We weren't all brought in to the family in the same way. And so Paul, while he's now magnifying this unity we have in Christ as Jews and Gentiles, he's also going to point out a difference in how we got there. Okay, And that's what we're going to be looking at at verses 8 and following. Any questions at this point before I jump into the next thought? Doing all right? Okay, hopefully it makes sense. If anything doesn't make sense, just raise that hand and we'll clarify, all right? 
Well, we see in verse 8 that what Christ was doing for the Jews is that Christ was confirming promises to them. Let's look at verse 8 again. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. Now, confirming that word, it's important to note that word, that is his purpose in his servanthood toward the Jews. Why was he a servant to the Jews? Well, he was confirming, confirming. What does that word mean? Well, it means to establish, to keep. It doesn't mean to erase or replace or fulfill. Those are all different words. This word in the New Testament always means to establish or to keep. He was establishing promise, promises. He was reinforcing the promises that were made to the fathers. Now you tell me, who are the fathers? What does Paul mean when he says the fathers here in the Jewish context? Prophets. Mm, yeah. Okay, very good. Good job. Good job, Summer. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who was the promise made to? Well, initially it was Abraham, wasn't it? There was a promise made to Abraham. And you see over and over again in the Old Testament, and then you see it also in the New Testament, those names linked together, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, showing that the promise to Abraham went down his line. Jacob, of course, was the one whose name was changed to Israel. If you want to make a note here in Romans 9.5 and 11.28, Romans 9.5 and 11.28, you see the same term being used, the fathers. Paul has used this term now three times in the book of Romans, referencing what God is doing among the Jews. And so the way that we could read this verse, again look with me at verse 8. It says, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the Jews on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to Israel. That's another way that you could read that. He's talking about the Jewish people and the promises that were made to their fathers. The Abrahamic covenant, of course, was signified by circumcision. That's why that word comes up so much when Paul talks about the Jews. That's why their nickname is the circumcision, because the Abrahamic covenant had a sign. And that sign was the sign of circumcision. Let's look at verse, uh, or chapter 4, verse 11, Romans chapter 4, verse 11. You'll see this same idea expressed when Paul's talking about Abraham. As we get there, will someone read Romans 4.11 for us? Okay. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. All right. So here's an important thing to note in verse 4. Paul is making clear that Abraham did not obtain the promise, the unconditional covenant of God, or he didn't obtain righteousness or salvation through the religious sign of circumcision. Do you see that in verse 11? It wasn't through circumcision that Abraham obtained what God had for him. Paul makes a note here that says in, uh, in verse 11 that Abraham had faith while he was uncircumcised. In fact, if you go all the way back to Genesis 12, like we will here in a moment, Abraham was given an unconditional promise of God before he was circumcised, wasn't he? In that state, going back to God accepts us as we are, 
God calls us and redeems us as we are. God called out Abraham and gave him an unconditional promise. And Abraham responded in faith to that promise. And all of that happened before the act of circumcision. So what is circumcision? Well, verse 11 tells us at the beginning of the verse, it's a sign. It's a sign of God's covenant promise. It's not a means to God's covenant promise. It's a sign of God's covenant promise. And Israel was brought into this unconditional covenant and entrusted with the oracles of God, the scriptures, and this very sign. They were the circumcised and the Gentiles were the uncircumcised. They had the sign of the unconditional promise of God. And Jesus entered the scene as a servant to the Jews, being circumcised himself. He entered as the ultimate Israelite and the agent of blessing, first to the Jews and then to the rest of the world. That's pretty astounding, isn't it? God working together this redemptive story. Okay? And Jesus came to his own confirming that promised blessing. That's what verse 8 tells us. Go back to 15.8. Jesus came to his own, the Jews, and what was he doing? He was confirming that promised blessing. But of course they rejected him. So now let's look at those three passages that you have on your sheet, starting with Genesis 12. Who can grab Genesis 12 for us? Raise your hand. Andy. Who can grab Matthew 15, 21 to 28? Who can get that for us? Matthew 15, 21 to 28. Tyler. And then Acts 3, 17 to 26, Rex. Okay. As we're hearing these verses, I want you to see how Jesus was set to come into the world to confirm the promises made to the fathers. Okay. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, this is going all the way back to the initial appearance of the promise when God spoke to Abram. He wasn't even Abraham at this time. God speaking to Abram. And let's hear what was said to him as he was called out in his uncircumcised pagan state. Go ahead, Andy. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All right. There's the initial explanation of the covenant. Notice that God is saying, I will do this. This is what's going to happen. It was unconditional. There's no if found in that promise, is there? I will do this if you fill in the blank. There's none of that. This is an unconditional promise made to Abraham that there would be a blessing to the nations coming through his family. Now, there's a, really three things you can see in that covenant promise. But for now, we'll just dwell on the blessing was to come to the nations through Abram's family, through his line. There was going to be a blessing entering the world. And it's not if Abraham got circumcised. It's not if, if Abraham obeyed. That was going to happen. It was absolutely going to happen. So now Jesus comes into the world, and he's through the line of Abraham, believe it or not. <laughs> he's through the line of Abraham, just as Jesus promised, this agent of blessing in the world. He's through the line of David as well. And listen to what Jesus has to say to a Gentile woman here in Matthew 15, verses 21 to 28. Go ahead, Tyler. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. 
But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. <laughs> but he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Wow. Well, that's some pretty strong language there for Jesus to say he came for Israel, right? He came to redeem his own. I'll read to you from John 1. You can jot this reference down. This is John 1, 10 to 13. It says, He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus came into the world to redeem his own, his fellow countrymen, the Israelites, and they did not receive him. But to as many as did receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God. So he came to the Jew first and also to the Greek, we see, don't we? He came for the house of Israel to redeem them. And when they rejected him, the Gentiles began to get saved. You see this in the book of Acts, too. Jesus commissioned his disciples in the book of Acts saying, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea. These are Jewish places. And then in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when you follow the narrative of the book of Acts, what did they do? They were right there in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2 and following. They're in Jerusalem, and then they go out to the outer parts of Judea, and they're getting rejected by the Jews. And then they go eventually to the outer parts of the earth. And there are some Jews that are getting saved. This isn't like a broad brush saying no Jew ever accepted him. I mean, when you think about the original disciples of Jesus, many of them were Jewish. But generally speaking, did the Jews embrace their Messiah? No. No, they did not. And so you have in the church, you think of the church at Corinth, you think of the church in Rome that were studying this letter that was written to them. You've got a mix of Jew and Gentile, and in some cases, predominantly Gentile. Now you read the book of James, and he was in Jerusalem, and he was writing predominantly to Jewish believers. But most of the New Testament letters, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, he was writing to Gentiles with some Jews that were mixed into those churches. All right, So it's an interesting thing that's happening. Now one more passage I, I want you to see. This is in accordance with the plan of God. Listen to what Peter says, a Jew, Peter's a Jew. Listen to what he says to his fellow countrymen, other Jewish people. Go ahead, Rex, Acts chapter 3. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also the, your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who has preached to you before. 
whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly, truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away everyone, every one of you from your iniquities. Wow. I hope that as it's been set up this morning with some of that background, that as you heard the words of the Apostle Peter there to the Jews, that some of that hit home for you as to what God is doing in the world. Peter starts off by saying, some of what Christ was sent to do has been fulfilled. Namely, look at verse 18, that he would suffer. That was predicted that he would suffer. Isaiah 53 and, and Psalm 22, passages like that, right? Jesus would suffer. Yet, there's more that Christ is going to do. Verse 19, repent and return, Peter calls them to do. And he says, look, verse 21, heaven has received Christ until the period of restoration of all things that God spoke by the mouth of his prophets in ancient times. Peter here is saying that to Israel, repent and return so that these times of refreshing will come. Repent, return to Christ, embrace your Messiah so that this nation would be restored in the Messiah. That's his plea to his people to embrace Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel. And Israel is going to continue to reject, we see from well, a, a few scriptures, not just those after the book of Acts, but those in the Old Testament too. Israel is continuing to reject their Messiah, and they will continue to reject their Messiah until God turns their hearts. And that's coming. If you read Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 37, God's going to do a work in Israel, and they will repent and return, and those times of refreshing will come, and that period of restoration that was spoken about by the holy prophets will come about. Right now, heaven has received the Messiah until that time. And so as we think of this big ultimate narrative in Romans chapter 15, verse 8, we understand that through Christ, the promises to Israel are established. They are fixed. They are kept in Christ. And right now, we're living in the already not yet kind of period where we're seeing some Jews be saved, but the promise is that one day there will be ultimate restoration. So the big idea in the church is this, the Jews are to look to Jesus as their Messiah, the one who establishes God's promises to them. The Jewish believers in Rome who are a part of that church, they're encouraged to look to Jesus as the one who establishes, who, who reinforces the promises that were made to them in the old covenant, as now they're brought into the church with the Gentiles and I want to point out, too, one more thing in verse 8, and then I'll pause and see if you have any questions. Verse 8, notice, again, Romans 15, verse 8. 
Notice the wording. Christ has become a servant to the circumcision. It doesn't say became. There's a a verb tense in Greek that's called the perfect tense, which denotes a past action that continues on with a, a present effect, an ongoing effect. And so what this is being said, is, or what's being said here, is that Christ became and continues to be a servant to the circumcision, which again just shows the great humility of God, doesn't it? And he's establishing the promises that were made to the fathers. All right, any thoughts or questions before we focus on the word to the Gentiles next? Andy. So today there are those who are Messianic Jews. Yep. They're part of the church. Yes. Yes. There is one. There is one people of God, isn't there? And in the church, there's a mix of Jew and Gentile. Yep, absolutely. Joe. So the Jews alive today have, they have hope. The Jews from past are done. My ancestors are gone. Those who died. Rejecting faith in what God had said. Those who died in unbelief. Yeah, there's, there's no second chance. It is appointed for man once to die, and then comes judgment. Hebrews 9. That was a letter written to Jews, Hebrews. It is appointed for man once to die, and then comes judgment. So yeah, that's why in this little blip of life, I mean, in, Scripture says this life is but a vapor. And it's so important what you do in this life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last, right? And so we implore all people to believe in Jesus because there's no second chance, right? I've never seen my ancestors. No? I mean, unless there's some sort of, uh, just like Abraham and the rich man, or the rich man and Lazarus, unless there's some sort of looking across the chasm, no, yeah, you won't. Yep. Right. Yes. I mean, this is why we send missionaries. Uh, it's a it's a sound argument to say, look, if uh, if people who have never heard of Christ or never embraced Christ, uh, we'll say never heard, people who just haven't heard the gospel, if they're going to be saved, then the most loving thing we could ever do is just never send anyone to them, put them in isolation somewhere that would secure their salvation. That's a bad, unbiblical argument, isn't it? Because the church is to send missionaries. The church is to send people who bring the good news. Romans chapter 10, how beautiful are the feet that bring good news. And so we go to them so that they may be saved. All right? Joseph. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Uh-huh. Joseph. Since Joe brought it up, um, is there any time around like the great white throne judgment where we might see the beginning? Yeah, it depends on what we're doing during the Great White Throne Judgment, because we won't be at the Great White Throne Judgment uh, as recipients of judgment. So it depends on where we are and what we're doing. God hasn't released those details. Yeah. So. But didn't it say that, like, didn't Paul say that someone would, we would, like, judge angels? We would judge angels and, and judge the world. We're co-heirs with Christ. We will reign with Christ. Um, and we see that, of course, in a, in a future time when Christ establishes his kingdom on the earth. Right? And those who are dead won't be resurrected until after that time. Yeah. Joe. 
Yep. Right. Well, it's a lot, I mean, it's similar to, it's not the exact same, of course, but Catholics believing in purgatory. And at the height of the Roman Catholic Church's corruption that we know of, uh, who knows what kind of corruption there is that we don't know about. But going back to like Luther's time, you know, people were manipulated to throw some more coins in the coffer. What, what is it? Uh, when a coin in the coffer rings, another soul from purgatory springs. So, you know, give me your money and that'll get people out of purgatory. So for them, it was a manipulation tactic to further ingrain people into that church. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to uh, verse 9 now. As God was confirming promises to Israel, look at what he's doing among the Gentiles. It's, uh, Jesus came and lived this life on earth and died in our place for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. He was establishing promises to Israel and he was causing the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. The ones who were far off from God, the Gentiles, have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about this. This is a great cross-reference for this study. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Ephesians 2, 11 and following. Those who were far off are now brought near because of God's mercy in Christ. We've been brought into the family of God, and I'm going to say we here, excluding Joe with her Jewish background. I'm going to say we because, you know, we're vast majority Gentiles here, were brought into God's family through the establishment of his church. His church is Jews plus us. Yes, Joe? When I say we in reference to Gentiles, I'm talking about everybody but Joe. Because you're not a Gentile, right? Well, I wasn't raised Jewish. But you have Jewish ethnicity? Okay, what do you want to be, Jew or Gentile? (laughs) Just pick one, and we'll roll with it. Yeah, okay. Whatever you want to be. If you want to be a part of the we, just pretend that you're part of the we. And if you don't, pretend that you're not. Okay, all right. Or I'll just won't say we. Gentiles have been brought into God's family through the establishment of his church. And we have received, Gentiles have received, covenant mercy from God in the expansion of the new covenant promises. If you go back and you read about the new covenant in the Old Testament, again, Ezekiel 36 and 37, Jeremiah 31 through 33, other passages talk about this new covenant that God's going to establish. That promise was made to who? The nation of Israel. And then... Here in the New Testament, we see an expansion of those blessings, the forgiveness of sins, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We see that coming to Gentiles now in Christ, don't we? God has now expanded who is in His family through these new covenant promises. And I want you to turn back to the beginning of Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 21, to see an interesting contrast here. Remember in verse 9, Paul's talking about Gentiles. He's saying that the Gentiles can praise God for His mercy. Well, in chapter 1, he was condemning Gentiles along with Jews, but he was particularly condemning Gentiles because they were rejecting God in their sin. Look at verse 21. This is in reference to Gentiles. Romans 1.21 
For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. So Paul is saying all the way back here in chapter 1 that in their natural state, Gentiles, though they knew God, they're not honoring him or giving thanks. Now turn back to chapter 15, verse 9, and what are the Gentiles doing? The ones who are redeemed, the ones who are saved, are glorifying God for his mercy. You see that contrast? In the natural state, it's 121, Romans 121. We're all condemned. But in the redeemed state, we're now here glorifying God for his mercy on us if we are Gentiles who have been saved by grace through faith. And then Paul lists off four Old Testament references focusing on God's work among the Gentiles. And this, of course, was God focusing on the Gentiles as a secondary beneficiary. Of course, in the Old Testament, it was always, the focus was always on Israel. That was his people. Yet, even then, there were times when the Gentiles were discussed as being a part of the plan of God. Gentiles have always been a part of the plan of God to some degree. And he lists off four different verses. The first verse that we see in verse 9 comes from Psalm 1849. It's also from uh, 2 Samuel 22.50. It's the same verse because you have David uh, in 2 Samuel 22 singing a song of praise. And then that same song of praise is preserved in Psalm 18. It's one of the few instances where you have the same passage in two different places. And he says here, look at verse 9 with me, this quotation from Psalm 18 in 2 Samuel 22. Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. At this point in David's life, God had set David as king even over Gentiles, over those who did not know him, over those who were his enemies. David was set as a Jewish man, as king over Gentiles. And in his psalm of praise about this, he praises God that he was able to give praise among the Gentiles and sing to Yahweh's name among the Gentile peoples. Well, now in our day, God has set his king among Gentiles again, hasn't he? In our day, we are seeing King Jesus and praising King Jesus among Jew and Gentile together in the church, even among the Gentiles, we're singing praises to God's name for this king he has sent. The next verse he quotes is in verse 10, that's from Deuteronomy 32, 43. And in Deuteronomy 32, Moses here is calling Gentiles to be joined to the Yahweh of Israel, to be joined to the Lord, the God who formed Israel. He's basically calling them to be proselytes in Israel. You Gentiles who don't know God, come in and rejoice with his people. Moses is imploring them. Come in and rejoice with the Jews, with Israel, the people of God at that time. In the next verse, verse 11, it's a quotation of Psalm 117, verse 1. If you count the different Psalms as different chapters, which technically isn't correct, but it's okay. If you count them as chapters, Psalm 117 is the shortest chapter in the whole Bible. It's just two verses. Okay, You have this verse here that Paul quotes where he says, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. This is a general plea that was made from uh, someone in Israel to the Gentiles to recognize and worship Yahweh, the Lord of Israel. And that, of course, is happening now in the church. 
And we see in verse 12, the quotation of Isaiah. This is from Isaiah 11. Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. This is actually a, a, an eschatological prophecy pointing to the time of the end, where there's going to be an explicit ruling on the face of the earth by the root of Jesse. Now, if you read uh, Isaiah 11, you'll see a familiar phrase in there. It says, the wolf will lie down with the lamb. Do you guys remember that verse? Right. A lot of times we quote it as the lion will lie down with the lamb. But it actually says the wolf. The wolf will lie with the lamb. And there's coming a time on the earth, it says in Isaiah 11, when the root of Jesse will be present, ruling and reigning, and there will be peace among animals that there's never been. It says that the lion, it does talk about a lion there. It doesn't say the lion will, lion will lie down with the lamb. But it says the lion, he's just going to eat on plants. He'll no longer be carnivorous. There is coming a day when that's going to happen. And it's Jesus' future kingdom that's explicit on the face of the earth when all nations will look to him. And look again at verse 12, quoting from Isaiah 11. Not only will the Gentiles look to him, but in him the Gentiles will hope. And so now in Christ, the Gentiles are not secondary beneficiaries. We're in the family. We're one. We're the focus of God in Christ on the face of the earth, aren't we? We have God's ear. We have God's attention. We have God in us and with us and through us. We are his bride, the church. And Paul here is quoting from the prophets, from the law. He's quoting from the poetry. This is the threefold division of the Hebrew scripture. He's pulling a verse from every section of that threefold division saying, look, we see Gentiles in the plan where God is going to show mercy to the Gentiles. And this is all leading up to the fulfillment of that beautiful future kingdom. If you read Jeremiah 31 or Amos chapter 9, write those references down. Jeremiah 31, Amos chapter 9. You know what God's going to do on the face of the earth? Israel is going to be an agent of blessing to the rest of the earth because they're going to be restored as we already looked at. Their cities will be rebuilt. Their vineyards will be full. Their cattle are going to graze freely and they're going to just have all sorts of agricultural, physical blessing. And the Gentiles are going to benefit from that restoration of Israel. It's all leading up to that future time. We're joined together now in the church for all who believe in Christ. And in the future, there's going to be an even more beautiful picture of on the face of the earth, total restoration because of God explicitly working to redeem all things in Christ, even his physical creation. So we see God's mercy now toward Gentiles because to the Gentiles there was no covenant promise like there was to Israel. The Gentiles don't own the fathers. The fathers belong to Israel. There was no covenant promise made to Gentiles. But now in Christ the Gentiles can praise God for his mercy because he has shown mercy on the Gentiles by calling them into the family, bringing them into the family, pouring out his blessing on them in Christ with the Jews. Isn't that astounding? That is, that is so cool. One more thing, real quick. You notice verses 9, 10, and 11? Each one of these Old Testament quotations, there's a reference to praise, isn't there? When we get together, whether it's Wednesdays or Sundays, Speaking as Gentiles, when we get together, why do we sing praises? Because we see the mercy of God at the cross, that he's called us into his family, and we are now released and free to sing praises to his name because we are in Christ. 
That's what he's doing among the Gentiles by calling them in. Isn't that amazing? God is so merciful. Joe. Oh, okay. <laughs> when, you, when you come to a decision, just let me know. But the important thing is that you are in Christ. There you go. Very good. All right. Any other questions or thoughts? Joe, so, Joseph. Earlier you were talking about the lion and the lamb and I guess the yeah. kingdom or whatever. Yep. So and you said that they will be like they won't be carnivores anymore. Yep. Does that mean that we won't eat meat again in the kingdom? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's think about this. Let's think about this. Let's go all the way to the new heavens and new earth. When, when God regenerates the earth and the earth is born again, that's the word that's used in Matthew 19, 28, the earth will be renewed. Will there be any death? No. I mean, you go to Revelation 21 and 22, there will be no death. Okay. So we, will we be eating meat then? Uh, maybe an impossible burger that, you know, they're making this. Maybe one of those. There will be no death. Now, yeah, when it comes to the kingdom, uh, you'll have to do a study on that and let me know the results, okay? Okay. Steve. What's the time of the Gentiles? Good. Okay, I don't have enough time to go into that right now. We've covered that already in a previous Romans lesson. If you go to Luke 21, verse 24, Luke 21, 24, Jesus talked about the times of the Gentiles. And what Jesus said during that time is that the Gentiles are going to ransack, raid, and just trample over the Jews until that time is fulfilled. And so what Jesus was basically stating there is uh, they're going to invade and start filling up their sin. And there's going to come a point where their sin is full and God's going to stop them, all right? Now, that, that time began all the way back in the first century. If you go to 70 AD, that was, that's a really critical year in history because uh, under Nero, the Romans invaded Jerusalem and destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. Jesus predicted that would happen in Luke 21. And that's going to continue to happen where the Gentiles are going to be at war with Israel. They're going to seek to, to push down and destroy Israel until those times are fulfilled. But there's also another time of Israel or of Gentiles that's talked about, and that's in Romans 11, verse 25. You can jot that down too. This is different than the one in Luke 21, but it's similar language. In Romans 11:25, Paul says that there's a partial hardening that has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That's talking about the church. So you have Jesus in Luke 21 talking about the Gentiles filling up their, basically filling up their sin until the time where he's going to stop it. And then you have in Romans 11, the Gentiles coming into the church until that's filled. And they're going to be filled at the same time. And then when they're full, Jesus is going to return and, he's, and things are going to happen. That's when it kind of sets off the day of the Lord business and the end time stuff. Okay, So that's a, it's a really big question. Don't have time to go into all the detail of that, but there's a, an overview. Okay. I have to keep going, because uh, we have one more verse, and this is a precious, precious verse that we do well to memorize, and uh, that's, of course, verse 13. Would someone read that for us, Romans 15, 13? Who's got it? Romans 15, 13. Amy? Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Great verse to memorize, isn't it? 
Well, this is the, the final verse before the conclusion of the letter begins. Starting next week, we're going to be putting our tray tables in their upright and locked position and securing our seatbelts because we're beginning the descent to finish Romans next week. Oh, yeah, not next week, the week after. Thanks. We have a guest speaker next week. Come back and you'll see. All right. Um, but we see here that Paul is imploring them Jew and Gentile alike in the church, as one new man, one people of God in Christ, that they all be filled with joy and peace in believing. Well, the bottom line of this verse is this, pursue joy and peace, pursue joy and peace in faith. And Paul, for his case here particularly, is imploring them to do that together as one. You don't have the Gentiles on their mission to find peace and joy, and the Jews over there on their mission to find peace and joy, and let's hope they can figure it out. No, they're all together in the church, and together they're to pursue peace and joy in believing. The Christian life is all about grace through faith. That's the start of the Christian life. When you hear the gospel, you're hearing the message of God's grace. And by believing, you are saved. By believing in the heart, you are saved by God. So you cannot act, access this joy and this peace that Paul is talking about without believing. You can't access the joy and peace of God without believing in God and His message to you. You can't go away from God and find joy and peace. He's the author of joy. He's the author of peace. He's the source of hope. And if you want those things in your life, you've got to go to God. And so together, as different as we all are, we are unified in our pursuit of joy and peace in Christ. And notice that God is the one who grants hope, or joy and peace, rather. In the beginning of verse 13, it says, May the God of hope fill you. It's an act of God. He fills us with the joy and the peace that we desire as He leads us into faith. God gets the credit for supplying us with joy and peace. And He causes us to abound in hope by this same faith. As we look to God in faith in Christ, we are abounding in hope. You see that in verse 13. So that, may He fill you with these things, so that you will abound in hope. That means to exceed, to exceed what is normal, to have a surplus. You want a surplus of hope? <laughs> uh, we, we could use a surplus of hope, couldn't we? Look to God and His work in Christ and the faith that comes through the gospel. And then notice one last thing. Notice the by there at the end. How do these things happen? By what? The power of the Spirit. Our joy and peace and our hope only happens by the power of the Spirit. This is a quote from Leon Morris. He says, The believer's experience of hope is always connected with the Holy Spirit and never a personal achievement of his own. Your hope is never a personal achievement of your own. And this pushes us, as we are together pursuing joy and peace and hope, this pushes us to fulfilling verse 7. Remind yourself of verse 7. Look down at the text. Accept one another. It's going to be much easier to accept one another as you are joined together in Christ pursuing the peace and the joy that God has for you. That is where we're going to find great unity 
and great acceptance. And when we yield to the Spirit's work in this way, we are in unified worship. Douglas Moo, in his commentary, says this, Each of us must recognize that we have been received by Christ as a matter of pure grace. And that same grace has reached out and brought into the kingdom people of all kinds of races, nations, and backgrounds, and with all kinds of prejudices. Such differences should never be allowed to disturb the unity of the church. Amen? None of that should be allowed to disturb the unity of the church. It is possible to have great unity, to have great peace, to have great joy in the church through the power of the Holy Spirit. He indwells each one of us, and we collectively are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we should join Paul in making our main concern unity in the new covenant community. As Jesus has come and initiated the new covenant with his blood, and we are together one community, one people of God, it's our priority to have unity in the church. One minute left. Thoughts or questions? Steve. A couple of weeks ago you said you can't boast in a victory that's not yours because it's God's victory. Yeah. So that's what this all is all about. Mm. Yeah. Uh, we, we can't claim some kind of victory on our own because it's not our victory. It's God's That's right. Yeah, even the hope that we have is imparted by God. It's not something that... We didn't conjure it up, did we? Yes. God has supplied. Yep, that's right. Good. Mandy? Did you have a... Oh. No. no false moves, Mandy. I will call on you. <laughs> All right. Well, let's pray, and then we will go experience some of that praising in unity as we sing together over there in the auditorium. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the great unity that we do have in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the mercy that has been shown to the Gentiles who were not given any covenant promises, but now in Christ have received covenant love. Thank you so much that you have included a, a wide range of people in your family that we would experience great unity in the midst of diversity. We thank you for establishing your promises to Israel. We thank you for the, the flow of the biblical narrative where we see what it is that you're doing in the world and that you've given us so much to look forward to in the future. Thank you that we are a part of this, that you've made us a part of this by your kindness, that we would display your glorious grace. Help us to accept one another now in this time, in this life that we have, to accept one another in the church and to pursue those outside with love, that your grace and mercy and kindness would be on full display in us and through us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.